I think as human beings, we always naturally and inherently like positive feedback, whether that's through attention or validation or whatever it might be. And of course, there are many superficial sources and elements of why humans value these sorts of things. You get people that are just egotistical. They want to go around thinking they're the king. So when this sort of stuff happens to them, it triggers their ego. But for me, it was like, honestly, a mixture of all those things. It was like, wow, like people respect me and they actually like my content. I'm proving to provide an impact on people through my content. And then secondly, it was, yeah, look, it's hard to, it's hard to admit for anyone, but it does inflate your ego to an extent as well. And that's where I had to be very careful in how I perceived this newfound fame. A lot of people I've seen experience the same thing. They take it to another level where they just become a different person. You're listening to The Big Asian Energy Show, where every week we interview Asian experts, move makers, and ceiling breakers to uncover their secrets of success so we can help you reach your greatest potential. I'm your host, John Wang. Let's dive in. Welcome back to Big Asian Energy. Today we have with us Jamie Zhu who is a social media creator. And honestly, I think I could say with a billion views across all the platforms, definitely a star without question. He's on everywhere from YouTube to Facebook to Insta, TikTok. He does his hilarious videos and prank videos, some of them involving his dad, which I think is actually really creative. And his parents... He's doing almost like a, a self-made, almost like a dating show. I don't know how to describe this, but I've been like following the dating videos that you've been posting the last little while. That's been cracking me as well. And of course, he is not just all that. He's also a social influencer and entrepreneur and does all branding across his 10 million followers across all these various platforms. Thank you for being here, Jamie. Really appreciate having you. Thanks for having me on, man. I'm looking forward to talking about all things big Asian energy. <laughs> so yeah, I think that's the biggest thing is that, of course, we talk about what it's like being an Asian American and, and or Asian Australian, Asian, anywhere over the world doing interesting things. How did you get into social media? What was your journey like? Good question, man. So when I was young during my high school days, so like from the ages of 13 till 19 years old, I was trying to become a professional soccer player, football player, what consumed my life at the time. So I was trialing for teams. I ended up making it semi-pro in the UK and also in Australia. So that was my focal point for most of my teenage years, adolescent years. And when I got to about 21 years old, having done quite well in England, I just realized that the, the higher the level of football I got to, the less I enjoyed it. And from a young age, I always had, I've always been quite a bit extrovert, extroverted in around people and in public, but semi introverted by myself, if that makes sense. But the extroverted side, I felt like I had something to offer. When I decided to quit football. I basically had no idea what I was going to do. And as you do, when you've got nothing better to do, you just go on YouTube or you just watch random videos online. And I ended up coming across YouTube. And then I started to watch all these guys doing funny videos, prank videos. And this was 2014 days, I would say. And something just resonated with me. And I just literally just packed up my bags, moved back to Sydney from London. And I just, uh, yeah, started making content. You first got started. When you first started, like YouTube is a, a very competitive market right? A lot of people make videos on it. And when you first started, did you have an idea of what you wanted to create? Yeah, man. I was watching all these guys in Australia do these like really funny videos. And when I watched them for the first time, yeah, I just felt such a strong connection 
in terms of I felt like this is exactly what I need to be doing. And I think it could have been partially because I suppressed myself during my teenage years from being so strict and so autocratic with my lifestyle from football. So it was almost like this liberation that I could do whatever I wanted after being confined for so long within semi-professional sport. The types of videos that really resonated with me was, sounds really weird saying it at 29 years old, but public embarrassment videos. I just really enjoyed watching them. And I knew that I also had the ball to do the same things, if not more than they could do. So it was almost like a no-brainer. It, it wasn't very logical, but it was almost like I had this intuition that I just needed to do it. And so I just followed that feeling and, and just started. So there was no planning whatsoever. You just grabbed a camera. I decided public and embarrassment like that was going to be your brand yeah it sounds really weird saying this now but yes correct it was <laughs> good my brain I, I did there were these video trends at the time called awkward train situations awkward gym situations i wanted to find a niche that hadn't been explored and all these videos were was like say a five minute video of some mm. guy just doing random funny things in say like a gym so that'd be called awkward gym situations or awkward train situations someone just something funny random funny things on a train so i came up with awkward library situations and awkward university situations so those were my first videos and man like looking back on some of them i don't know how on earth i had the balls to do it and secondly i don't know how i had the like it was just so embarrassing that i could <laughs> out, how old they are in this day age. yeah but i i, I want to ask you that exact same question is how did you get the balls to do that especially one of those early i remember the one of the first videos you went that went viral was the one where you had like porn blasting when you like pull the sound system you're playing porn how did you get the ball well that's a lot of confidence to to go in and be like yeah this is what i'm gonna do today yeah look man i can't ask you ask that question because i don't know <laughs> Uh, but just something inside of me loved the adrenaline. It's almost like when you ask someone, why do you like going skydiving? It's mm. for the adrenaline. And I think I just had such a calling to do something quite in this world. And yes, while it started with doing silly stuff like that, I think this would transcend into something even bigger in the future. Not mm. supposedly in the space or the realm of public embarrassment, but just having that where I was able to have the confidence to share whatever I want to share to the world in front of an audience is going to translate into bigger and better things in the future. So look, man, it was a lot of fun. I, yeah, look, I'll be real. I don't, I haven't seen anyone till this day do some of the stuff I was doing on yeah. that much of a scale. I still hold the uh, the trophy at, at this point in time. Oh, for sure. Yeah, you definitely have the crown for some of the, <laughs> some of the most room-busting, awkward moments. I, just, I felt those things. And that's, that's not an easy thing to do. I made, I've made some videos before. Nothing to the kind of stuff that you've been able to do, but I know how it feels to step in front of a camera and know that people are watching and it's, it can be terrifying because you're being judged by everyone. And especially coming from, for me, at least like coming from an Asian background, how I appear has always been like in the back of my mind. I think it's probably just because my parents beat that into me or something like that. Yeah. So like when you were making these videos, I, I especially coming from, you said like a very structured background of like football and training and everything like that, when you were conceptualizing it, did it ever make you nervous that you were going to get in trouble or anything? Yes and no. Yes and no. Yes, because obviously there are legalities of certain things, but no, because I just knew almost like I had this guiding, guiding protection that's just, that, that was leading me down this path. And I just, for some reason, inherently and intuitively just knew that whatever I did, I'd be okay. And back then I was very like spiritually into the universe and all these crystals and all that sort of stuff. 
Now I have a completely different perception of spirituality. But back then I saw it as like I was being led by the universe and I'd be protected. And which I was, not going to lie, which I was. (laughs) And yeah, I just knew that whatever I did, of course, sometimes I had people around me that were like, hey, you can't do this. Like you'd get into a lot of trouble. Yeah. And definitely back then my, my threshold for having a filter was very low. So I didn't actually, I couldn't foresee consequences of certain actions that I was about to partake in, but others could. So I did have people around me to facilitate that and protect me in that way. But for the most part, man, I just, for some reason, just knew what I was doing was the right thing at the time. What's your spiritual perspective now? So I'm Christian now. And this is something that has come about from a very big part of my life, which I went through last year, which I'll be sharing in the future. Not yet, but I was basically demonically possessed last year and uh, holy shit yeah yeah and look i didn't i didn't believe in dude you can't just drop a bomb like i was demonically possessed and it's i'm not gonna share it yet yeah man it's up to you if you want to dive into that now or you want to do it yes i don't know yes we're diving into that now yes jamie we're not gonna stay let's talk more about tiktok no what was that experience like yeah man so firstly it was almost like beyond any human being's possible comprehension of our imagination Having gone through such a thing, I can't even believe this day I went through something because I never believed in these things before. But the way I got into it was I was doing, as I said, like work with like crystals. I was doing like energy healing. I believed in the powers of the universe, but I actually wasn't, I didn't know where these sources of energy were coming from. And what I later realized was after dabbling in these certain things, it do, it is, is that it doesn't come from a pure source. And so I actually got possessed by doing one um, Reiki healing session. It just took one one session for me to just, yeah, all this weird stuff started happening. Um, I can't reveal everything. I can service level reveal some stuff, but dude, I just changed completely. Like I walked in myself and walked out a different person. It was nuts. For when you were doing the Reiki healing session? Yeah, man. So yeah, I walked into this woman's house. She did it and then I walked out and I was completely different, completely changed. Okay. Yeah, maybe literally. Were you Christian before? No, I wasn't. So I was, a, I was an atheist my whole life. And while I respect atheism every religion, through me being atheist and opening myself up to so many things without protection, it wasn't good for mm-hmm. me. And the things I was mm-hmm. dabbling in, you've got to be so careful because from our mainstream minds and our mainstream societal ways of thinking, if something's invisible, it doesn't exist. However, I've come to realize that's far beyond the truth. In fact, the invisible realm, the spiritual realm is the most powerful realms that exists in both a physical form and on, and on a um, spiritual form. So when I was doing these things, whether it was just some, like this lady, all she did, bro, she just waved her hands around me. She didn't even touch me really. And dude, the effects. And although I've been healed physically, I, I've been very damaged. So I'm still recovering from the physical damage as well. As in like you're physically hurt from the Reiki session? Yeah, I was physically what, hurt. What was the injury? Basically what happened was she, she waved her hands on my body. That's all she did. She didn't do anything else. But yeah, yeah. when I walked I, out, I've, I've been through a, a Reiki session before. It was, it was weird. They like hover your hands, like half a foot over your body. And they like, something happens. I, I don't know what exactly it is, but like something happens. Like energy thing happens. Yeah. Yeah, man, exactly. And what happens is that is the Reiki master who has become accredited in Reiki healing. And by the way, it's a very short course. You don't really need many qualifications. You have to have some sort of source connection with what they call the Reiki angels. And then they guide the facilitator to open up your different energy points. And so she's basically getting intuition from these Reiki angels, not knowing where they come from. Now I know that we're yeah. really And yeah. what happens is she opens you up. So when you physically pay money for some sort of spiritual healing, you've given a legal right to anything to enter you. In the spiritual realm, they operate on legality as well. So 
demons, spirits, negative entities, they all operate via legality. So if you give them a, a right to, open, to infiltrate, they can. So in this case, the fact that I allowed this woman to do what she did, she opened me up and she allowed whatever intuition she had to enter me. And look, I've heard oh. most people, they don't have any problems from Reiki, but what happens with a lot of things in new age spirituality, which is the umbrella term for all this sort of stuff, is that many of these, these healing modalities or effects that you feel that might be seen as positive, as they say, Satan is the master of deceptions. She's actually, they're actually sourcing this inner healing from an unpure source of, from dark energy. But the reason you feel good is because as you feel good, you'll keep dabbling in more and more, which leads you down a rabbit hole. Mm. But, but the opposite happened with me. And I'm quite thankful for that because I could have got myself into worse. So yeah, she yeah. did all that. I walked out. I started having nighttime attacks every single night. Got diagnosed with a random heart condition. Had all this weird, bro, like really weird, like sexual imagery and thoughts and stuff like that. I've never thought in my life. And I also became suicidal. I felt a presence oh, around me at all times. I started to enjoy tormenting my mom. I had electrical impulses go through my head whenever I had a positive thought. And then also I would start getting physically attacked when I'd have these like weird sexual thoughts, but I didn't want them. I'd be physically attacked. So the damage was Physic done by somebody else or within you would feel physically attacked? With within. And, the, and, and it was so crazy because from a thought, I, I would be attacked. Like a simple thought. Like, it's hard to comprehend. It's very hard. What do you mean attacked? Okay. So I'd be driving right, for example, just yeah. doing my normal thing in the daytime, going to the gym, whatever yeah, yeah. it might be. And I'd all of a sudden just randomly have all these thoughts, right? These random uh -huh. thoughts, like very bad stuff, might I add. And I'd be like, one of two things. I don't want this thought because it's just weird. Or I don't have time for this thought. <laughs> one sure, of two. Yeah. Yeah. When I had this, when I pushed it away, what would happen is the area that she opened me up, which was in my sexual area, I would feel a stabbing, like something like burning me, like punishing me whenever this happened. And I, how, how do you explain that? Dude, like a spiritual STD, man. Literally. But at the same time, man, like the life I was living at the same time was also further opening me up to all this stuff. I was, oh, I had a addiction. I was living that sort of like partying, drinking drugs lifestyle. This one session was the massive trigger point, but at the same time, I had also not been doing myself any favors to my lifestyle. Yeah. This, this sounds like it was a turning point for you where like before this, like you had this like party and then this shifted. It was a literal curse. It was a blessing and a curse because yeah. had I not gone through this, I would not have become the man I am today. I wouldn't have matured. And through the process of eliminating what was inside of me, I've now become 10 times better than I, than I even was before. When you eliminate spirits through a pure source, and for me, I was able to use the Holy Spirit or Jesus to remove them. Everything else didn't work for me apart from God. Dude, like, things I used to suffer from before, I used to feel overwhelmed, procrastination, anxiety, depression. They all left me. I don't have those things no more. Yeah, look, this is what I mentioned at the start in terms of I started off by doing comedy on a large scale, being silly. Yeah. But this facilitated me to have a platform to share this one day. And while I can't share it completely now, because I have to build my foundations around me so that one day when I do release everything, there's a good chance I'll be canceled for it. And I need to make sure that I'm okay in that way to sustain myself with whatever right. I could. That's yeah, in a nutshell. This, this just turned into a way more interesting interview than I thought it was going to be. I thought we we're going to talk about like YouTube and TikTok, but this got way better. This, we just 10X his interview. Holy shit. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. I, I respect your boundaries, but I don't know how to go into it. And 
Uh, let's talk about the lifestyle before this transitional moment of the spiritual awakening, this like deep, it sounded like God was acting in a way to help you through this, to come through this. So what was it like being a, a social media star? What was it like being a, a YouTube star? Did you ever get recognized on the street? Like, what is that like being Jamie during that time when you were in the party phase? Yeah, man. So social media just happens so fast. Your life can change at the blink of an eye. I remember for the first few years of starting social media from 2014 to 2016, I was early on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And in Australia, we're quite behind the US. So you could say that when I go into social media, I was probably second era in Australia. Whereas in the US, it would have been 10th era or something. Having been one of the only people here making videos in general, but then secondly, to the degree I was doing them on such a big scale where I was doing things in front of people, I was going into lecture theaters three times a week, embarrassing myself. I was going into professional tennis matches, making sex noises and, and all that sort of stuff that you've seen. It was like, bang. Like when, when the first thing popped, my life changed completely overnight. What happened was, yeah, what, what, so, was the, what was the video that popped? Was it, was it the, the porn in the this lecture studio video or something else? Social media isn't how people think it is. The first two years, as I was saying, I was doing a YouTube, only, nothing else. Yeah. And I was doing these awkward videos, public embarrassment, and the videos were great. I'm not, I would, I still laugh my head off watching yeah. them to this day. They're hilarious. But, yeah. Yeah. But since I was only on the one platform, it was hard for me to grow in all aspects. So in about two years, I only got to about 9,000 subscribers. Within that two years, the, the porn in the lecture video went viral, but that went mainstream media viral. So there's a difference between going mainstream media viral and internet viral. And so when my video went mainstream media viral, yes, it was on the news. It was on Huffington Post, Daily Mail, News.com, all those outlets. However, it didn't translate into audience growth or follower growth or views for my own platform because they just kept their own stuff of me. So that didn't equate to anything. So still, while having gone through that virality, I still hadn't earned one paycheck from social media. I was still delivering pizzas five nights a week, working at childcare at university on, on, on welfare. So the tipping point for me was when I met a friend of mine who was, who was actually doing funny videos on Facebook. And I'm not sure how it is over in North America, but in Australia, Facebook was huge until about 2017, 2018, I would say. Then everyone started to transition away from it. And so I said, oh, why not? I'll try, I'll try to do this on Facebook. And as much as I'm someone that knows I'll never give up on anything, there was during the YouTube phase, the two years I was getting nowhere, there was a bit of an inkling like, hey, I've been doing this for a long time. Nothing's happening. Is this the right thing I should be doing? And so when I found Facebook as a new outlet, I said to myself, look, I'm going to give myself almost like an ultimatum. I said, if I, I'm going to give this almost like one last, one last chance. If I don't, if something doesn't happen out of Facebook, then I'll consider doing something else in my life. And so I decided and made this just conscious decision to upload three times a week without fail. Didn't matter how I felt, I just had to do it. And so I went through, yeah, the first month just focused and I tried everything, man. I just literally did whatever I thought was going to go well. And so I, I, instead of overcomplicating videos, I started simplifying videos. So in the YouTube days, I was making like five to 10 minute videos. And these videos would take me weeks to make because mm -hmm. I'd, I'd be such a perfectionist. I'd want the, the scene to have this reaction. I'd want to do this. I want to do that. No, it's not good enough. And the fear of posting as well through judgment and, and imperfection was obviously weighed down on me. I decided to take the opposite approach on Facebook and stop being so romantic as I like to call it. And dude, within the first month, I got to 10,000 followers in one month. Oh, wow. Holy crap. 
So when you say, sorry, just to clarify, when you say you stop being so romantic, what does that mean? So I stopped being so perfectionistic about everything and trying to make it this artistic piece of like, almost like a, a painting by Mm. Picasso that can't have any errors. Instead, I just tried to make it as effective and simple as possible for both myself and the audience to understand. And what I realized was like, bro, I just need my phone. I just went around in like supermarkets and started making funny sex noises with my phone. I mean, 10 minutes and bang, I got a few hundred thousand views. And so, dude, I just started to do that. And I didn't even need like a cameraman anymore. I just started doing stuff on my phone. And the response was way, way more than the YouTube days. And then in six months, I got to about, no, sorry, I think it was four. In four months, I got to about 60K, I would say. And I remember the turning point when everything changed for me was I did a video, I had 60K at the time, and I then did a video where I went around a university in Sydney and I did this prank called when you can't afford university textbooks. And it was just me approaching people, hey, can I look at your textbook and you're stealing it. And I filmed this at the right time. You you gave it back after though, right? Depends uh, on who it was, yeah. Exactly. And dude, I dropped this at the perfect time because this was when the semester was just starting. So so students were, you know, thinking about how they're going to afford these textbooks. And dude, I remember just posting this video and it got like a few hundred thousand views, I think. And then the next day I woke up and I basically, I used to go out like clubbing a lot. So I went out clubbing <laughs> and bang, just from that video, I went from no one knowing me in public to then the next day, like 15 people saying, oh, I love your videos. You're that guy. And everyone's getting photos of me. My life literally changed overnight. It was so quick. And then it just kept escalating, escalating and um, How did it feel, for, especially for somebody who say who was such a perfectionist? I mean, to suddenly have fifteen people the next day recognizing you on the street—like, how did that feel? It was very surreal because I think as human beings, we always naturally and inherently like positive feedback, whether that's through attention or validation or whatever it might be. And of course, there are many superficial sources and elements of why humans value these sorts of things. You get people that are just egotistical; they want to go around thinking they're the king. So when this sort of stuff happens to them, it triggers that ego. But for me. It was like, honestly, a mixture of all those things. It was like, wow, like people respect me and they actually like my content. I'm actually providing to, I'm proving to provide an impact on people through my content. And then secondly, it was, yeah, look, it's hard to, it's hard to admit for anyone, but it does inflate your ego to an extent as well. And that's where I had to be very careful in how I perceived this newfound fame. A lot of people I've seen experience the same thing. They take it to another level where they just become a different person. And the one thing I said to myself was that firstly, I'm not better than any human being on this planet. I'm exactly the same. Hmm. I still shit twice a day. I still have, and <laughs> that's, that's, that's gonna, actually pretty good. I mean, you have, you have good fiber intake, man. But I'm never going to let this take control of me to an extent. And so that was, that's one thing that people have always noticed about me. Even to this day, I've never changed in that way. Yes. I might be walking down the street and I look like I'm arrogant because I do have a very concentrated face when I'm walking and I just look like, <laughs> it's fine. And then maybe I won't see someone say hi or I'll, I won't give them the time of day accidentally. But it's not like that. It's just, it just started to happen so much. And then I'd start getting crowded in, in places where I'd be literally circled by people just filming me. And then going another step up when I started to travel overseas to the Philippines, for example, or Singapore, Indonesia, the same thing. It was on another scale when I went overseas. And so I just became another scale. People were like crowd around you and you had your fans show up or stalk you. Yeah, dude. Like, it was just crazy from how it like rapidly increases in the translation from you just being on the internet and then manifesting into your physical reality. It, it's so real. And at the same time, I was one of the only people in Australia doing this. Of course, I had a lot of eyeballs on me at the same time, but man, it was like, look, I enjoyed it. 
I could, I could handle it. A lot of people can't. And I'm just a massive people person. So it was interesting, man. And things became interestingly easier. So I started to sleep around 10 times more because I could literally like, I've always been good with women, but this put it on a whole nother scale, man. Like it just became so easy, bro. <laughs> and then it just became, honestly, man, it just became a numbers game for me. And then that's how I started to gain. What, what was the number? It's a lot. It's a yeah. lot. <laughs> Which now I really, I can see the, how I devalued myself from that high number. And if I would have uh, gone back in time, I wouldn't have allowed myself to do that. But I, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying though. That to, and that, I think that's the thing, especially we're going to that stage. We, I'm a big believer in men's work, which is like the, the inner work as guys do. And one of the, the concepts behind it is we go through these four stages as masculinity, right? It's, it's called page, knight, prince, and king. Mm. And like page is when we're like kids and we're like looking up to the knights. And knights are like, you're out there, all you want to do is like slay dragons and save maidens and go on epic quests. And that's what, what you were doing. You were going on these epic quests. Your epic quests were on YouTube and they involved <laughs> epic pranks, but that was your epic, that was your epic quest, right? And then for you to come back and, and this makes perfect sense. This is a phase you're going through. And then the prince stage is more about now, like I'm settling down. What's the next stage? What am I going to create? What's my empire? And it sounds like that was very much your night stage that you were going through. Dude, honestly, like you hit the nail on the head, 100%. Mm. I, I fully agree with you, man. Like we do have different stages. And I think even putting things into perspective, like it was such a big shock for me to be put on this pedestal so quickly and for my life to just change in front of my eyes where it was hard to comprehend. So yeah, I think definitely like it was a, it was like seven years of trying to figure myself out, living that lifestyle, which by the way, I was very paraded by so all my mates would be patting me on the back and uh, encouraging all my behavior so that definitely influenced me even more yeah of course let's go party with jamie he's gonna get laid and he's gonna get all of us later that's the idea right? yeah Pretty did it ever get too much the two questions i have pop up is one is did you ever feel pressure to maintain this identity that you had created this persona was that a challenge for you at all dude that's such a good question so i think i'm one of the only people that will be honest about this sort of stuff. A lot of people that are in the public eye that do have this fame will not admit this, but the truth of the matter is it completely changes the way you see yourself and it completely changes the way that you see society as well. And what I mean by that is when I started to have so many people come up to me on the street, recognizing me, asking for photos, it became almost an obsession. And the obsession became, oh, now I've been, now I'm this sort of person. Now my identity lies in my status and fame. Mm -hmm. Now, if I don't get recognized a certain amount of time on the street per day, does that invalidate me? And so the, the most difficult part about this whole thing was the outside peer influence I had as well. It's so superficial and so dumb, but, but the truth was I was getting um, approached and, and recognized so many times every single day. And so when, say, for example, I was hanging out with a school friend that I hadn't seen in years, they automatically have this new perception of me. Oh. I'm going to be walking on the street with Jamie and he's going to have like all these people like taking photos. And then, and then I've, I was in certain situations where I'd be walking with them on the street and no one would come. And they'd say, oh, hey man, how come no one's come up to you? Jeez. And if you think about psychological effect of that, even though it's so stupid, it's so dumb, but yeah. what that does to your, almost like your, your ego and, and the identity that I thought that I had to maintain, it was, it was very toxic. Yeah. And so my friends didn't know any better. But I, I, I should have told them like, don't say that shit. Like it's so dumb and you're essentially invalidating my entire existence upon fame. You know what I mean? Man, it was really weird and I became obsessed with it and I always felt pressured 
that, oh, if I go out, I have to have these many people come up to me. And then sometimes I'd purposely, it was just, it was really cringe what I used to do. I used to like purposely look at people. So they'd like look back and then point at me. So someone saw, like, it was just very detrimental. And that was a big downside. And I'm sure people handle it differently, but that's just the way that I end up handling How did you get through that? Or do you still find that still comes up for you now? Yeah, not anymore. Completely mm. gone. I just, I see the world completely differently now. I see how the world is made up of individuals that base their entire self-worth and existence on superficial means. And I don't see any value or credibility of any of the stuff that I used to find of value before. Mm. And what I mean by that is I have different personal attributes and personal qualities that I think are more noble than others now. So before it was status, fame, money, which while that is important in my opinion, to a degree, it's more about what you do with those things and what impact you're making on the world. You know, as much as I was making people laugh through my videos by doing all these crazy things, I, I took a step back and I said to myself, what actual influence and imprint am I leaving on this younger generation that follow me religiously? Mm. And when I looked at myself, you know, breaking all these rules, breaking the laws, living this partying, drinking, sex-fueled lifestyle that was completely bound by fame, money, and that sort of way of living, I realized that I wasn't really giving a positive impact to the people that were supporting me. So having made this almost like a spiritual realization, I just, and through the demonic attack I went through last year, completely opened me up to the realities of the world we live in. And I think as well, if you want to touch on like the Asian aspect of it. Yeah. I think what I saw was like, Another thing that I used to get quite bogged down by was I used to almost to an extent feel devalued because I was Asian. And the reason I say that was because when I was going through high, when I was going through primary school, I was at a very, sorry, we're going off like, we're going on like a million tangents right now, but I'll just, I'm following this. This is, this is awesome. Yeah. Growing up, I went to a uh, predominantly Asian school. So I was the, um, I was half, I'm, I'm half Asian. So I all, I always felt like I didn't fit in because I was only half Asian. Mm. Then when I transitioned to my high school, did a 180, I was actually one of few Asian kids. So I used to hang out with the guys from my primary school. So I was in like the Asian Indian group and dude, we used to just cop it so bad, man. Like the bullying was next level. We used to get called like Gary's. Every word on the sun. That was like the nickname what? for Asian. Oh, wow. Okay. That's the first time I've ever heard that slur. Gary's? Yeah. That's a, yeah, is it just Gary. like a general racist slur or did it have any meaning in it? I don't know, but like small eyes, like everything you could possibly Jesus. And, and so I actually ended up, there was one day I was sitting with my friends at lunchtime and I was in year seven and this year nine kid comes up to us and he brings all his mates. He's like, boy, boys, check this out. And he points at what points at my friends and I one by one. Asian, Asian, and he counts us all out. And I said, you know what? That's enough for me. So I left the group and I went to the white group and I never went back to the Asian group. Damn. And then when I was in the white group, I basically, it was almost like an obsession was created in my mind where I did not want to be around more than one other Asian guy. It was almost like I had to balance out the white and the Asians in the group. So there wasn't too many Asians because of the racism back then. I basically almost had like Asian phobia for most of my high schooling. And I didn't want to date any Asian girls. I didn't want to be around Asian people at all. I had to make sure there was an average ratio of white to Asian. Like it was just nuts from all the bullying. And so the reason I brought this up was because it translated into my social media career as well, where when I started doing stuff with my dad, I got a huge proportion of an Asian audience. Hmm. And in Australia, I was in a group. We had like healthy competition with each other, me and a few other boys doing social media at the time. And these guys were all like white Aussie. And they had 
mainly predominantly Australian, US, UK, yeah. European audience. Whereas I would say like, man, at least 50%, at least of my audience was Asian. And so they used to also give me shit about it. They said, oh yeah, but you've only got like Asian followers and like devalue. Like what audience. the hell? What? As opposed to you only have white followers? And yeah. And then it became even more of on top of all like the mental fragility I had over this newfound fame. This also became a matter of, oh, now on top of all this, I had to worry about too many Asians being my followers. And so then I, one people started to say, oh, it's so funny how like only Asians come up to you and no one else. And then it made me like question my identity. And it was like, yeah. oh, here we go again. Like high school is coming back to bite me in the ass. And look, the other thing about, the other thing they used to talk, like the other justification, I guess they had was that when you get views on social media from third world countries, it's lower CPMs. That also played my mind. I'm like, oh, well maybe yeah, I'm being devalued, blah, blah, blah. I almost had to overcompensate for this. And then I started to really overcompensate by trying to be someone I wasn't like, I used to go to all these like redneck events and try to interview people. And mm. while the white crowd all knew me as well, they weren't mm. as loyal. So mm. it was like in my head, I was like, oh, but how come only the Asians really love me, but the white people only know me and, and watch me sometimes and not as much and became this whole right. thing in my head. That was, that's gotta be tough because what you went through and not just the bullying in high school, like in, in primary school, but essentially it continued on like that's a straight up racism right the invalidation and saying that oh you only get asian followers is to say you're not good enough to get white followers which yeah. is a bullshit concept like it's just a completely bullshit concept jeez yeah and then having asian did, did, did was that a conflict you had all these asian fans these are your fans these are the people you serve these are people you connect with was there a conflict where you did you feel any kind of resentment or because i know that feeling it's so common i went through that I also grew up in a very westernized place and I know the feeling of the rule of three Asians. Like you can hang out with two Asians, like one other Asian person, but you can't hang out with two other Asian person because then now you're an Asian group. Like that's like the invisible rule, right? Yeah. And, and I got called out for it one day because I started talking about this kind of stuff. And then one of my friends, one of an ex-student of mine sent me a message just like, you only have white friends. And I was like, no, no, I have Asian friends. And you're just like, you don't post pictures with a lot of your Asian friends. And that was like, to me, I was like, oh shit. And that wasn't even, that wasn't conscious or anything like that. It was just, yeah, like I, I, I hang out with this crew of my white friends more often. Like it just didn't even occur to me, but it was hundred percent. Yeah. Like it goes so deep. It does, man. Especially when you live in a more segregated culture of a Western country mm -hmm. and people watching this, I hope Asian guys or girls watching this find comfort in my story because I'm not even full Asian. I'm half Asian and I mm -hmm. still experienced the same struggles as they did. So Jesus. I think it was an interesting playing field for me because I was, I am half. So mm -hmm. even though I am half, I still experienced it. How I was able to get out of this was mm -hmm. really after all this spiritual demonic stuff happened to me last year, where I started to see the world completely differently. And this is something I really want to touch on where I think that to a large degree, I think there's this fear from Asians that we are segregated or we are not as valued as Western people, especially if we live in the US or Australia or Canada, because we're, we're not in our own country or so to speak. And what I found with, with my life is that I would get fairly intimidated by white girls, like blonde girls, for example. Mm -hmm. And I think a big thing is like, while it's great to spread awareness of the, the conflict between culture and race and to raise awareness mm -hmm. is great and obviously try and mitigate it. But I think the key to all this, especially for men to build ourselves up to a degree where nothing 
in our external worlds can affect us to the degree where we stop and shut down. So building ourselves as a man to a point where it doesn't matter what people say to us. All that matters is that we have this foundation where no matter what happens in life, we can handle it. Mm -hmm. So my entire focus um, this whole year has been just building my foundation so that I can be the protector and provider of my family one day. So I think it's easy to fall into this trap of victim mindset and victim mentality where we think, oh yeah, but I, I've got it this way, poor me. Like I live in this country and I'm Asian and like people see me in this different way because I'm not white. Honestly, like it's all bullshit. Like instead we should be going the other way and using this as an opportunity to inspire others further. Instead of thinking that way, we should be building ourselves up to the level where we're almost unstoppable. We're unbreakable. You know what I mean? And I think that's another perception that people think of Asians is, oh, Asians are like robotic and weak. And I think that that's far from the truth. We just need to show oh, them more yeah. that we are capable of mm -hmm. stepping up to the degree of what society thinks is normal and strong. But all Asians have, the, have it in them. You know what I'm saying? A hundred percent. I really believe in this idea of being, I, and I joke around about this, but like, be unapologetically Asian. There's a stereotype of Asian people apologizing like for, so it's almost subtle or apologizing. It's not necessarily actually saying, I'm sorry, or really apologizing, but it's like, they, they feel like they're inconveniencing people around them. They feel like, oh, they don't want it because we're taught to be humble, right? So many of us were taught to be humble, to not make too much of a ruckus. And I think, no, like we need to start being unapologetically Asian. And I love what you said, which is like unbreakable. We have so such a rich history and background and to, we don't have to be defined by the race to be strong in it, to have that backbone in it. Exactly, man. And I think my dad is a perfect example of that because you don't see many Asian guys with white girls. It's becoming more common, mm -hmm. but yeah. I actually did an interview about this the other week. Mm -hmm. It's very rare to see. And when I see that, I'm like, yes, like the Asian guy stood up. He got the balls and he went for it. You know what I mean? And I, I, my dad did the same thing with my mom. My mom was his English teacher. And my dad was this fob, no English, Chinese guy, shot the boat in Australia. And he pulled my mom, who's like a proper Aussie teacher. Yeah, he's a baller, man. Well, he's a teacher. You know yeah. I mean? so I'm like, you know what? That deserves some respect. And so props. Yeah. And dude, I feel like you see a lot of white men with Asian girls, 100%. But I yeah, think sure. Asian men just need to step up and, and be more dominant and just get out there and just, just go for what they want, if that's what they want, of course. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. I always love seeing Asian guys with white girls. It brings me joy. I know the feeling. So my partner, she's white. It feels weird to say, but I felt that, right? Like when I first started dating, and for a while I, I dated mostly Caucasian women. But when we first started dating, I felt, and she is, if I can just take a moment and just humble brag this, which is not humble at all, but my partner is really beautiful. She's the model and ex-dancer. Like she is so hot. That, when we first, like when I first saw her, I was intimidated as fuck. Okay, she she is so hot. And I went to ask my friend, we have mutual friends, and I went to ask my friend about her. I was like, yeah, so what's Amy's deal? And, and my friend actually was like, oh, like so many guys ask about her. And I got that. There's a pride there. It was like, yeah, I'm like representing my Asian brother. We started dating, right? I, I love her. It's not about the, it's not about her appearance, not about her race or anything like that. I love her so deeply. She's amazing. But there is a part of that's like, yeah, I, I'm starting to see that a little bit more, but it is still a rarity. We are not seeing, it's not the same numbers as, as the way it is. And it's not about the numbers, but it's looking at why is there this fear? Why is there this judgment? And how do we start turning the tide? Because that's the question that really matters behind it. Dude, Phyllis and props, respect. I love hearing all <laughs> that. And then and know that she's also a 10, that makes things like three times better. Oh, I don't like, no, you'll have some very quite kids. Yeah, so, probably yeah. end up like I don't want to get too political, but 
masculinity is very much under attack in the West. Let's be real. And I think that, as you said, Asian guys are very more, more humble and that's a great thing. Mm -hmm. But I think what I see in, in large proportions is that Asian guys through their humility need to also step up and realize that being too humble isn't doing our race any favors. I think literally, and I'm not saying just Asians because mm -hmm. I see it in every single culture, but we just like men just need to stop being pussies. Like mm -hmm. we just need to really stop. And the one thing that completely changed my, my life was when I woke up literally this year to this, I used to be the most emotional guy. I used to be like scared of things. I used to be fearful. Of course, that's very hard to believe considering my videos I've done. But the truth is I, I, I used to have the worst social anxiety. I used to be so, such an emotional guy. And no matter how politically correct you want to be, women don't like emotional guys. We need to be the ones, the figureheads in our families that are almost like we bind the family yeah. together. And of course, it's not, it's, I'm not saying don't be in touch with your emotions, but in terms of fragility, we have to be strong and we have to put things aside and do what's logically right at the same time. So mm -hmm. what I've started to do this year is I've realized this. I realized that my whole life, what I was doing was I was completely a slave to my emotions. So I'd wake up one day and if I felt any less than a five out of 10, I wouldn't get out of bed. And that was my justification. Mm -hmm. What's going to happen when I have a son, I've got to take him to school, make him lunch. And I feel like a four out of 10, am I just going to use that as a reason not to take him to school and, and make him lunch? No, I can't do that. So I think this is moving into what you said about the knight and the prince phase as well. But mm. I think a big thing that I see is that not just for Asian guys, but for men in general, we have to realize that society is trying to make us slaves of that instant dopamine, slaves of whatever feels right is right. Like we need to have some logic in there. We need to foresee the future and realize that if we're going to adopt these habits and values, then we're going to be slaves to everything. What I've been doing this year is I've just purely from awareness of me being controlled and a slave to my emotions, I've completely stopped that. Completely. Mm. I went from being the most inconsistent person in anything. I didn't know anyone more inconsistent than me in my entire existence to now the most consistent human being I've, I know to this day. Mm. I used to not be able to go to the gym three times a week. I haven't missed a session in seven months. I go every single morning at 7.30 a.m. I don't care how I feel. That's the point. Mm. I wake up. I might feel this way, but I don't care. I just do it. There's no, there's absolutely no reason for me not to do things because I don't feel like it. Zero. Mm -hmm. And so once you start building that habit, you just feel so much more empowered. I've, I've done more in the last six months than I have in six years. And so that's a huge lesson I've learned. And that's a message to, if you want to put this into a context of Asian guys, just like, if you want to, if you want to do something, let's stop being so humble and just do it. Yeah. If that comes to dating, if that comes to whatever it is. And I think that's the misconception that people have about Asian guys because they are more humble. And I think in order to change that, I don't know, what are your thoughts on that? That's just me going on a rant, but. Oh man, I've got so many. I, what I see is a lot of guys, and this is, this is definitely something I see in Asian men. It's not just exclusive of Asian men, but it's the nice guy syndrome. Yeah. And then the, the thing about nice guys is that nice is not the same thing as kind. I'm a really big believer in kindness. Like I have a nonprofit all around it. I'm like, go and do things. Kind is a, is an active empowered state where I see somebody in need and I support and I provide and, you know, charity, whatever it is that you do. Nice is passivity. Nice is manipulative. And that's the issue I see is that, is I see men who are afraid to confront their own masculinity mm. or afraid of their own power. And because a lot of times they're taught and oftentimes raised by their mothers rather than their fathers. Like there's a generation where men would be raised by their fathers. Like at a certain point of your age, like your dad took you to work 
And it's, this is how you chop a tree. This is how you like wake up and you like made a sword. This is how we swing a sword. This is exactly as you said, like a guy should be able to protect and lead your family. That is not in, that is not about inequality whatsoever, but the masculine is much like we literally, genetically speaking, have stronger muscles for a reason, right? Because we need to make sure we have our families, we can protect our families for our mom, where the, where your partner is pregnant, where you have children, like you need to be able to pick up a sword, not to start a fight, but to end one if you need to. So I'm a really big believer of that. And I do see a lot of Asian guys who've been conditioned a lot of times from by the feminine to not set boundaries, to not face their fears, to not confront it exactly as you say, like that discipline. I'm not saying I'm a really big believer in mental health. I'm a huge believer in it. Yeah, go see therapy, go deal with that shit, go process it in a healthy container and then come out of it and wake up in the morning and go hit the gym. Like you could be both. Yep, yep. And discipline is a muscle just like anything else that takes time to build. And that internal discipline of having that internal strength, that backbone is something that we also need to confront. It's, just, it's confronting our fears, confronting our need to people please, right? That's the issue we got to run into. So don't be nice just because everyone expects you to, because that's just you being manipulative. You're trying to nice everyone into liking you. Like, mm. fuck that noise. No, be your, find who you are and like full fucking acceptance and stop seeking approval from others. You, what you just said before about living for others, I think that might be, potentially is such a trigger point for Asian guys not stepping into that masculine frame. Because we are taught, and let's be honest, like in the Asian culture, we have much stricter parents than other cultures, for example. And so when you're living for your parents, oh, Jamie, you need to become doctor and you don't want to be a doctor. Then you're already, and you're forced to be a doctor. Yeah. That already, that already inherently gets rid of your ability to make your own decisions for your own life. Mm-hmm. That, that really weakens your masculinity if you think about it. And so what you said was so true. Like being able to live on your own terms and having Asian guys realize that, yes, like your parents want you to do this, but the world has changed. Let's be honest. Like you don't just have to be a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant to no. have a stable life. There's so many other things you can do now. Yeah. And I think hopefully through the generations that changes the perception of parenting throughout Asia. Mm-hmm. But I think, yeah, like, dude, I think that potentially that's a big reason for Asian guys not being able to step into their true frames and being able to, to implement power into their lives and responsibility. And I, I actually came from a single mom as well. And my mom's the, the best human being I know to this day. I, I love her the most out of any human on this planet. And she did such a great job of raising me as a mother. But since mm. my dad was always living in China, I never had that masculine frame around me to, for someone to mm. tell me you can do it. You're not a slave to your emotions. You're not a slave to the external world. You, you can do this. And so that's actually a huge reason I never made it in professional football because I, I had the lack of masculinity in my life. And mm. I remember being at all these very high level teams where all the kids had their dads telling them, hey, come on, you can do this. I don't care how you feel, you're going to do this. You can do it and influencing them through self-belief. But I had my mom as, and bless my mom, as beautiful as she is saying, oh, if you can't do it, it's okay. You can try it. Like I didn't need that and needed my dad to be there. And another thing as well, another thing about what I've noticed about Asian parenting, I see it a lot where parents, instead of using positive encouragement, they use negative encouragement. So that can go both ways depending on how you absorb the information. So you see a lot of Asian parents putting their kids down constantly saying they're not enough. They're not good enough. And yes, I get it. Always want to aspire to be better than yesterday. Full, 100%. Mm -hmm. But when you 
implement so much negativity into your son or daughter's life where they start thinking that's the reality of themselves, that they are actually below average and they can't do things through that autocratic style of parenting and constant criticism and constant blame. That does bad things to the kid's upbringing as well and their mental health. Yeah. It's yeah, many, it builds it, it builds this idea of that they're not good enough. But I think this is there's two sides to this. And I see I, I really resonate with what you said about talking about being raised by the mom. And I think a lot of Asian men are were raised by their mothers. And it's a very gender dynamic. Like dad would go off to work. A lot of my friends, for example, here in Vancouver, like their dads were in Asia working. So their mom raised them. Women were raised typically by other women, and that makes sense. So they have that same idea. And without a male role model, of exactly what you said, sometimes it's just, no, you, I know you don't want to do it. And you're going to do it because I believe in you. Can also be balanced by, it doesn't have to be, no, you're going to do it or else you're a useless piece of garbage. So like, it's about that part of the middle. That discipline and self-discipline doesn't have to be about abuse or about, I'm just going to let you do whatever you want because discipline doesn't matter, right? 100%, bro. 100%. It's that balance. It's polarity at the end of the day. Polarity. It's polarity. That's it. That's the magic word right there. It's polarity. We need both. Yeah, we went through a radical, we went to a radical change. And I would probably say in the last 30 years where there's a lot of shying away from just telling people that, no, like this is, we, it's time to step up and that's okay. Does it make you lesser? Does it make you more or anything like that? It's just step up to what it is that you believe in. Yeah. We needed that. Dude, dude I, I resonate so hard, man. Like I'm also the sort of friend now and, mm. and I take a lot of pride in this because I'm, this also counteracts the stereotypes of Asian men, but I'm the sort of friend that I'm actually not a nice friend. I'm actually a hard friend. I had a friend come to me the other week and he's saying, oh, but this, but that, oh, but I feel like this. And I, I didn't give him like the victim encouragement that he wanted. He wanted me to be like, oh, you poor thing, go and do this. Just I gave him the exact opposite. And he started crying in front of my face. Yeah. And I said, sorry, but I'm going to, I'm like a realist. And I think the more political correctness and these sorts of things are actually to a degree lying to the other person. If we mm. just told everyone how it is, of course, in the right way, emotional intelligence mm -hmm. is a big factor. Yeah. But if we stop shying away from, oh, I might hurt his feelings or what if they feel, who gives a fuck? Just say it in, a, in the right way. Because the more you don't, the more we're going to lead people down the wrong track and the wrong spiral. You know what I'm trying to say? I do. There's a great quote by Oscar Wilde that I think of. He's a writer. And he said, true friends stab you in the front. And I think, I think that's exactly what it is. Like sometimes the heart, like the kindest thing is a heart genuine message of, dude, this is the path that I see you go down and I, and I want to support you in it. I run a men's group. I, I've actually had a, a number of years where I've ran a men's group and, I, and right now I run an Asian men's group. And our number one motto is speak the truth to your brothers and you're not doing him any favors. If you see him going down the wrong road and just like keeping quiet, mm -hmm. that's you hurting him. That is you hurting him. That's not you having his back. Having his back is sitting him down and being like, look, this is the behavior that I'm seeing. I love you. And this is why I'm telling it to you, because I believe you could do so much better. I believe that you have the ability to, and I'm here to carry you and support you through that, but I'm not going to lie to you. Yes. We need that. We need that energy back. We need that community back. We need that, that kind of, we used to have those like guys, we used to have these kind of things. It, it was so many different cultures had 
women's group and they will go off and do a women's circle and the men will do off their own little circle. Like, but we, we've lost so much of that. Either it's not seeing us okay or just came out of thing. Dude, like 100%. And I, and I think this goes so far back to like evolution as well. Like, do you know how mad I am at my dad for not forcing me to know how to pick up a pile of sticks and make a fire out of it? Do you know how mad I am at my dad for not forcing me to learn Chinese, for not forcing me to learn how to survive in the ocean? Because now all these things have turned into fear. And now I have to deal with them by myself, which is okay. Mm -hmm. But as a parent, I think that, yeah, we should be implementing these very valuable foundations into, especially as men, into our, our kids' lives. And as you said, building that community together, telling the truth, not shying mm -hmm. away from things that are difficult to heal. And I think the way society is going is we're getting worse and worse in that area because now it's the snowflake generation. We can't even handle any, anything like... I have a lot to say about this, but I can't say it because you know what I'm trying to say, right? I and this is the point. Yeah. I'll, I'll get cancelled one day because I'm going to say the truth. I, I, I don't want to say this. I, I, okay, so to, to in your defense, because I know where this is going to go, I, I'm, I have a feeling of it, is that no, like extremism on either end does no one any favors. And that's the biggest thing is that we're, we slide so easily to like, if you say something that's a little bit this way, oh, you got to be a Nazi. If you go something a, a little bit this way, then you're just a pussy. Like, we have these extremes and it's like the majority of the truth is here. It's, it's yeah. in the middle. It's understanding the context of one and still speaking to the other. And we got it. And we, it's a funny thing. We're talking about social media, but it's the fact that social media takes things to the extreme because somebody is going to use this one quote and twist it and twist it and twist it and twist it. That's the issue we're running into. Yes. You might be referring to someone in particular who I know. You might be referring to, but yes, correct. So <laughs> many different people we could be referring to. It's the Asian connection. I know exactly what you're thinking. Yes, hundred and ten percent. All right. Honestly, I want to do like an episode two because this is going to go on for. There's so much. This got so much more interesting in the first ten minutes. I got to say, I, I was not expecting any of this level of like conversation. I was not expecting any of this. This is so much fun. We're going to have you back for for an episode two, and we're going to talk about Asian masculinity, and I think that's got to be a central topic because that is a big one. That is a big one. In the meantime, is there anything that that you're right now excited about or looking to promote that you're working on? Or where can our just, audience find you? Yeah, so I'm on all platforms, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. It's at Jamie Zoo. <laughs> you're going to have a hard time. Um, yeah, I Googled you. It was like, it's hard to miss you. I've been around for a while. But I have a newfound purpose now. And while I am scaling my currently existing content, which is the family mm -hmm. content, comedy and stuff, getting more people involved, building more of a community around that. So obviously with a good message, mm -hmm. my ultimate purpose is this sort of stuff. And this will be coming out, honestly, in God's timing. I don't know when, mm -hmm. but it will happen eventually. And this is really what's, what my future purpose is going to be about. So look, just stay tuned for my entire demon story, which I'll be mm. uh, making a movie about one day, literal movie. I'm so and yeah, I don't know, man, just big things are going to happen. So it's exciting. Oh man. Ladies and gentlemen, Jamie Zoo, I cannot wait to watch that story. Literally, I'm like gonna, I'm just gonna start subscribing and, and putting it in my calendar. We're gonna have him back. We're gonna talk about Asia masculinity and dive a little bit deeper into it. Lots of other things. So much uh, for your time today. Really appreciate you.
As Asian Americans, we are as strong as our collective community. So if there's something that you found valuable in this episode, share it with a friend and tag us on social media. And if you like the show, leave us a review and send us a screenshot and you might win some big Asian energy merch, which we give out every month. So you can go out there and own your big Asian energy. <laughs>